Tuesday, February 28th, and this is Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill, and joining me in studio today from Motley Fool Stock Advisor Jason Moser, from Motley Fool Inside Value Joe Mager. Gentlemen, good to see you. Hello. Uh, we've got news from the tech world, the automotive world, and we are going to start with the online travel world. Uh, shares of Priceline up more than 7% this morning on better-than-expected fourth-quarter earnings. Jason, this is a long-time recommended stock of the Stock Advisor Service. What's the story with Priceline? Yeah, I think that what it has done is really uh, – it, it's brought – Priceline to light as the real global player, as opposed to just sort of another internet travel site. Um, we've always known that, you know, here in the states we have what Priceline and Expedia and Orbitz, all these Orbitz, different competitors. Yeah. But what this really does is it exposes Priceline's international side, so to speak. So we know that uh, hotels, for example, make up about fifty-five percent of Priceline's total uh, bookings. Uh, annually. And so we saw some significant growth here just in the the hotel uh, room reservations. Uh, Global hotel room reservations soared about 53% here. Uh, Airline ticket bookings also grew. Car rental days grew as well. But the real key here here was the the international uh, hotels. And so seeing this, uh, you know, come to light, we understand that that uh, Priceline has done a very good job of branding itself over the years as, as a real go-to. Uh, for us, maybe a bit of a fragmented industry, but the relationship, the relationships they've created internationally speaking with you know the number of hotels that they, they have access to through Priceline.com and through Bookings.com, uh, just to put that in perspective here, Bookings.com, their sister site there, has exposure to over 195,000 hotels in 165 countries. That's a big So footprint. it's not <laughs> insignificant. And so I think this quarter really just exposed its its true uh, sway, you know, on a global on a global perspective. Uh, Joe, uh, we've seen other online travel sites shares up slightly this morning, uh, Expedia, TravelZoo, but you were looking over the numbers uh, before we started taping. They're they're kind of just killing it, aren't they? They are really amazing. When you look at the growth acceleration at this company over the last several years, uh, and it's still ongoing, it's really remarkable for a business, for a stock that's only selling at about 27 times earnings. Uh, they've grown their top line at a 31% annualized rate over the last five years, and that's actually accelerating off that rate right now. Pretty impressive stuff, and I definitely think that the early mover advantages out in Europe and other parts of the world are going to be very valuable. Uh, I think users tend to be pretty path-dependent. Once you start using a travel site, that ends up just being your go-to. And so the earlier you can get there and establish that relationship, not just with hotels, which is huge, but with customers, you know, that's a sticky business. Um, Jason, we've talked in the past about, you know, we've, we've seen stories certainly where the airlines are going to get together and create their own uh, website, their own portal, and same for you know certain uh, hotel brands as well. Yeah, hotels are doing that already, actually. But I mean, is is this one of those situations where even if they go ahead and do that, is Priceline now at the point where hotels and airlines? Opt out at their own peril is Priceline too big to ignore? I think it is, and we before before taping the show here, you said the what was it the heads on beds heads on beds that's <laughs> axiom the, there yeah that's the whole I, thing with I hotels. I mean that's just it though they need to get if the room's not being used then it's just it's losing money and so you know it's it's kind of like one of those things where they don't really need to fix what's not broken and so yes the hotels and airlines to a degree will try to get together 
and maybe take some of that power away from Priceline. I don't know that that's really something that uh, is is sustainable, though. I mean, the fact of the matter is, the more scale that Priceline gets here, the more relationships they create, the better offers they can present, the more consumers that will that will you know try their services, and it just kind of perpetuates itself. And you know, Joe was talking about the accelerating growth, and it's really true. I mean, I was looking back here just over the past ten years, top line revenue has quadrupled in the past ten years, which is significant. Uh, this company's averaged a net margin of twenty percent over the last three years, and it's not like that was lumpy. I mean, that was relatively you know twenty percent every year. That's a lot of money being made every dollar. And the more scale they get here, the more relationships they create, the more money they make, the better deals they can offer, and it just keeps going. Um, do you think that uh, you were talking earlier about sort of the, the dominance that Priceline has in Europe? Do you, from a strategic standpoint, is this a company that is going to sort of take their success, um, take the, uh, the revenue that they're generating, and look to you know, gain even more market share because, as as you said, you know, here in the U.S., it's it's sort of all over the place. It seems like it's a more even match, whereas in Europe, the 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 victory has already sort of been handed to Priceline. Well, I would say it's been handed to them for now. I mean, I, I wouldn't, you know, I would never call it game set and match. I mean, things look good right now, but they are they're very dependent on hotel revenue, and and it's obviously something that internationally speaking is a big contributor to their to their top line uh, revenues. It all it takes is for you know some some rule breaker to get in there and, and just try to change the rules of the game a little bit, offer something different. Uh, you know, consumers are quick to try something new, so I think they're going to have to constantly be working on on innovating, offering new deals, and, and you know, creating incentives for customers to keep coming back. This isn't just a they haven't they haven't just got it made. Yeah, and you see that in the stock price too. I mean, that's why it's only selling at twenty seven yeah, times earnings really when it's been growing at that rate. Is that the market has that skepticism? It's not like the LinkedIn one hundred times. So, <laughs> so even though shares of Priceline are trading at a twelve year high, you still you still think it's a buy? I don't know if I'd say it's a buy. I think it is pretty attractive, and I think that it's something I'm going to look into more, given you know that growth rate and the the valuation. Just on a rough cut, it's definitely very interesting. Steve Sinofsky is the head of Microsoft's Windows division, and let's just all cross our fingers and hope he's getting a good night's sleep, because (laughs) tomorrow, February 29th, he will preside over the public test release of Windows 8 operating system in Barcelona, which, you know, that's... I've never been to Barcelona, but I'm just going to go on a limb and say it's probably nicer this time of year than Redmond, Washington. Um, Probably. Joe, how important is this release for Microsoft? Well, it's very big because right now you've got this world that the PC world has changed, that they've dominated for so long. Right now, Mindshare is drifting towards tablets and smartphones. And last year, we actually saw smartphones outsell PCs for the first time. I think that's a trend that's only going to continue. I think you're going to see tablet sales also (laughs) booming. And when you look back on what originally made Microsoft and Windows such a success was that it was an open system, just like Android is today, where they beat Apple because they partnered with as many hardware producers as possible. Android followed that same playbook, and it seemed to have served Android pretty well at this point. Uh, At this point, though, they've basically been boxed out of tablets because Apple absolutely dominates that market, and whatever sliver is left, uh, Google is out in front on that. Mm -hmm. So this is really really important for them to extend the brand and advantages they have into this surging market before that market extends its way more into PCs. 
And I mean, this is going to be you know a system that runs on tablets, desktops, laptops. I think they're you know, at least based on the reports I read today, there seems to be some question as to whether or not mobile phones are included in that. Uh, but Jason, I mean, Microsoft's a company you watch as well. What you know? What do you think of? Uh, I guess as a longtime shareholder, I sort of look at this and go, okay, this needs to be a hit. I'm just not sure how big a hit it needs to be, and it and it seems increasingly. Like it needs to be just a, a a grand slam. Yeah, I mean the the dream <laughs> the dream home run, right? It's I. The thing is, the thing that bothers me is even if it just really is a tremendous success, I I don't know that that's going to be enough. I mean, I we really have a situation here where the the big dogs in this game are Google and Apple, and you know Joe's right. Those the the mind share there, people are going one way or the other. It's it's almost like well, Microsoft. While it's very significant in our day-to-day operations, just in whatever we do, it's it's really becoming less and less relevant as time goes on. And so even if they really knock this one out of the park, I don't know that it's going to convince someone with an iPad or an iPhone or a Google Android device to switch over to you know some type of Microsoft tablet or, or smartphone. That's where I think the real problem is. They this may be a battle that they they've already lost, and it's not even really been you know announced. I mean, it could be. I do think where tablets could get interesting is with some strong Microsoft Office representation and usability, because that to me is a big drawback of my iPad. Is I'm a heavy Excel user, as are a lot of enterprise customers, business customers. Uh, Word would be nice on here, <laughs> uh, because I basically, you know, it limits my functionality. And there are software packages with the iPad that you can use and that Apple puts out, but it's just not the same thing. And to have tighter integration with that would be valuable. And it would extend that, you know, beachhead that they've already got that's so valuable in Office. And that's something to remember, too, is that we're not just talking about extending Windows for the sake of Windows, but that other huge property that's Office. I think it kind of helps them maintain the status quo. I don't know that they really gain much from it or lose much from it. I think it just kind of keeps on. Yeah. We talked yesterday about uh, Warren Buffett and who his eventual successor will be or could be. Steve Ballmer's been the CEO at Microsoft for over a decade. Steve Sanofsky has been at Microsoft since 1989. He heads up the Windows division, one of the most, if not the most important division there. Um, is this guy automatically on the short list of people who will replace Steve Ballmer when he eventually steps down? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we've already seen some talent defections at Microsoft recently. Uh, Ray Ozzi, chief software architect, who was the visionary there for a long time, left. Uh, Steve Elop, the CEO of Nokia, actually jumped ship and went over there. So you've seen kind of talent defections at the top, and you've got, you know, the likes of Google, Apple, and Facebook poaching talent throughout the organization. And I don't, you know, I'm not inside Microsoft, so it's tough for me to comment too much about their internal culture, but I think there probably is something of somewhat of a brain drain going on with great talent there, and that's a pretty big risk. New York Times reporting that government regulators uh, this week will propose a rule requiring all cars to have backup cameras starting with the 2014 models. Uh, Guys, what do we think of this? uh, This is going to cost an estimated uh, additional $200 for automakers. Um, uh, balance that against the estimated 18,000 injuries that come every year uh, from uh, in- incidents caused backing up. Uh, Jason, I'll start with you. So coming from the perspective of someone who worked as an auto claims adjuster uh, with a big insurance company before I came up here, you would think that something like this would be a, just a great thing and it's just going to make life easier for everyone. 
I don't know that that's really going to be the case. I think it's just gonna, people are going to be pitting one camera against another, and they're going to be like, well, my camera says this. Well, no, my camera says that. And it, I've, I've ridden in the cars. I've driven my mom's car, which which has one of those. They're neat. I don't. I didn't really use it. It's still kind of a weird perspective. Uh, I mean, I think it's great for the company that makes the cameras. I was going to say, <laughs> yeah, uh, Gentex, uh, a company that basically specializes in sort of uh, automobile optical devices, shares up five percent yeah, this morning so it. good day for them they're loving it joe i mean you're a, you're a big gm guy what do you think of this what do you think of what this means for automakers well these costs are going to mostly get passed on to the consumer so it's not gm that's really going to be paying for this it's you and me and news car new car buyers you know it's very well intentioned very well intentioned but it's treating a symptom the the problem is not that people can't see behind their car necessarily. I would wager that a lot of these times where there are accidents, there are externalities going on elsewhere and that this wouldn't have changed anything. And, you know, very well-intentioned, probably won't have the sweeping impact. Maybe that, if the camera includes a hands-free phone device with it. Maybe. <laughs> so what is one thing you would like to see if the government were to require automakers it could, you know, to put in cars? say, in the next three years. So three years from now, every car is going to include X. What's on your wish list? Oh, well, I'm going back to the day where we were talking about those, you know, what what kind of device would we want in the car? I mean, golly, man, install the coffee maker right there, the hands-free <laughs> coffee maker. It's I get in, it's right there, boom, I'm done. You know, you probably save a lot of traffic of people pulling off and going to Starbucks and whatnot. They just hands-free coffee maker. I'm going with seat warmers because one of my cars has them and the other one doesn't. And it's <laughs> on a cold day, it makes all the difference it's in the world. A difference. Joe? Flux capacitor. The flux capacitor. <laughs> no, I, I got two. So one would be breathalyzers. Um, can't start your car without one. I think if we could put one of those in for 200 bucks, I'd probably save a lot more lives than a rear camera. Um, two would be Bluetooth. So again, I'm just guessing. I don't have this data, but I would wager more accidents happen because people are talking on their phones than people get hit mm-hmm. from people backing up at two miles an hour in their car. Yeah. Siri. That's Siri. Get Siri in the car. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure Apple is hard at work at getting Siri. Car turn left. <laughs> in every car in car the world. Car goes straight. Uh, before we wrap up, should point out today, February 28th, National Pancake Day. Uh, this was started in 2006 by IHOP. So if you go into uh, IHOP today, you get a free short stack, and they ask uh, folks to consider making a donation to the Children's Miracle Network Hospitals. Uh, so far, they've raised nearly $8 million. So a little golf applause for IHOP and uh, the, the fundraising applause. that they're Gonna doing. Uh, IHOP is not publicly traded, but it is owned by Dine Equity, which is publicly traded. Uh, so since it's National Pancake Day, Let's just go around the table. Let's talk pancakes for one second. And for our listeners out there, give me a tip. Give me a a recipe. Give me something that anyone who makes pancakes or likes pancakes can think to themselves, ooh, I'm going to try that. And then we'll ask people to email us at radio at fool.com which one they like best. Jason, you're up first. Yeah, so I I like taking a little bit of a fall twist on my pancakes and just doing that all year round. Uh, Throw a little pumpkin spice in there. So some pumpkin spice pancakes, a little whipped cream on top with some cinnamon, you know, syrup, the whole works. But pumpkin pancakes, man, it seems like just a fall kind of thing, but the kids love it. It's a big winner. It's done really well in our house. And Uh I mean, you can't, you got to have the bacon to go with. Well, sure. Yeah. Everything's better with bacon. (laughs) Joe? Chicken and waffles are off the table. <laughs> chicken? No. As All we right. talked about earlier, it's got to be pancake. I had to throw that in there because <laughs> I care about chicken and waffles. 
Everybody's had blueberry pancakes, and they're plenty fine, but live it up and go with raspberry pancakes. It's a twist. It's tart. It's sweet. It's a nice change of pace. goes with syrup. All right. Joe's signature raspberry Or with honey. That's an underutilized play, too. Honey instead of syrup. What about honey and raspberry? Just go crazy. Throw those. Well, don't be be a nut. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So my thing is, when you're making pancakes, first of all, they're not hard to make. And don't go with the Bisquick. Just don't. Nothing against the good people at at Bisquick, but just... Just mix up several different types of flours. You come to my house, that's what you get. You get four flour pancake. White, wheat, corn, and buckwheat flour. Corn, oh, wow. right. Oh, yeah. Corn gives it just a tiny bit of crunch to it. Buckwheat, like sort of a, a, almost a smoky kind of flavor. Four types of flour. You will just, you will wow your guests. Have Why that. haven't you had us over for pancakes? <laughs> Drop us an email, radio at fool.com. You can go with Jason's Pumpkin Spice. Joe's raspberries or my four flower pancakes. We're not gonna. I don't think we're gonna promise that whichever one is the winner, we're gonna come to your house and make them. But I know, think we should. Maybe we can have a. Maybe we can have. I'm a, gonna uh, promise that. I don't know that we. I'm have, gonna go to the winner's house. Market foolery <laughs> cooking edition and just throw the video out there of uh, making some pancakes. Throw Jason, the chef Jason Moser, Joe Maker, guys, thanks for being here. Thank, Thank you. you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We will see you tomorrow.